I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello, welcome. This is the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. I talked a little last week about an upcoming statement from the American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee on potential common name changes. And it did come in that sort of awkward period between when I record these parts of the podcast and when the podcast actually comes out. So if you're paying attention to this issue, you may be, you may be were wondering why I didn't address it last week, but I'm gonna address it now. And it's just as well having a little bit extra time. My opinion on it has kind of gone back and forth in the period between when it came out and now. So the statement basically says that the NACC was going to come up with some new guidelines for changing common names in what they call the context of a broader cultural landscape. Uh, They state that they will strike a balance that recognizes the principles of nomenclatural stability. There's that, that phrase again, while respecting circumstances in which the names would be reconsidered to reflect present day ethical principles or to avoid ongoing harm. That is Those are quotes taken directly from the statement. Uh, They also state that they're producing a new proposal for McCown's Longspur, which I am happy to just begin calling Baywing Longspur, but no word on when that will come out or when that will be addressed. So while this is a little bit better than the old statement referring to quote-unquote political correctness, which is one of those terms that meant something perhaps less insidious 30 years ago but has not aged well, I I think it still falls a little bit short. It might have been improved if they had had that new long spur proposal ready to go to release alongside this, you know, basically saying here, this is the sort of proposal we want for this sort of thing. This is what we're going to take a close look at. This is what we will potentially accept. Instead, there's still a lot of confusion about what they want or what nomenclatural stability even means in a world where Gray J became Canada J like two years ago. It also calls into question why this committee in particular, made up of white evolutionary biologists, should be the one to make decisions about what those present day ethical principles are or who is harmed. I don't think they are set up at all to do that, taking nothing away from their expertise on matters of systematics and taxonomy. But this is different. So I still don't really understand the hang up. I don't really understand the timeline because the impression that I get is that they are kind of content to run out the clock on this and hope this effort dies off. And I think that's pretty clear that that isn't going to happen, even if it does in the short term. I know a bunch of working groups that are interested in flooding the committee with name change proposals this year. So when they start releasing those proposals next year, it's going to pop up again. 
So I appreciate that this is a volunteer committee. I appreciate that this is frequently one of those high risk, no reward type efforts you see in academia. I appreciate the path that they have sort of created for a bottom up effort to change some of these names and potentially do away with honorifics entirely, even if it is one by one. But I described it as underwhelming when I first saw it. I still think that is the case, but we'll see. We'll probably have more to say about this in the July this month in birding in a few weeks. On the show today, I'm here to make a couple corrections at the end and to make a short acknowledgement to a time I was wrong on the internet. But first, you might have heard about changes to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, that foundational piece of conservation legislation. It isn't pretty. And here to explain what is going on and what you, yes, you, I'm talking to you, can do about it is Tyke James. He is the host of Onward for Wildlife at the Wildlife Observer Network podcast and a conservation policy professional advocate. He is with me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of July 2020. Big news from Nova Scotia, the Atlantic province hosted an ABA code for gray heron this week near Kentville. This was a provincial first record, and interestingly enough, the first ABA area record of this Eastern Hemisphere version of our familiar great blue heron away from either Newfoundland, which boasts almost all of the great heron records for the ABA area, and Alaska, which has an additional one or two. And as an aside, even to chasers in Canada, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but visitors to Nova Scotia from outside the province must undergo a mandatory 14-day quarantine due to COVID. But hey, if you want to take the chance, I suppose you can technically, if maybe not morally. Other ABA area notables this week include an oriental greenfinch at Unalaska, Alaska, which is one of the innermost Aleutian Islands and notably the one with the largest permanent population. So birds are still turning up in western Alaska. Even though the main birding islands are closed for the year, they are actually coming to where the birders are. One other first to note, North Carolina gets another in the form of a one-day wonder Cassin's Kingbird in Chatham County. This is the state's third first record of the year, and I, a North Carolina resident, have seen none of them. That's all I've got for you this week. For a more complete look at the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com groups slash aba rare. You can also follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. Birders are undoubtedly familiar with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, at least by name, and recent proposed changes to that piece of conservation legislation by the Trump administration have environmental groups concerned about the long-term impact on birds. Uh, let's talk about what it means, what it does, and what birders can do to address it. I'm joined by Taiki James. He is the host of the Onward for Wildlife, a wildlife and politics podcast on the Wildlife Observer Network. Listeners, might remember him from a recent episode about Black Birders Week in which he was one of the organizers for that, but I'm, I'm glad to have him back to talk about conservation. Welcome back, Taiki. How are you doing? Happy to be back. It's like, you know, imagine a, the late night show walk on where I'm like, oh, hey, everybody, I'm back. Hey. You <laughs> yeah. Know? If I have like a fake uh, applause thing, I'll definitely show it there. It's definitely good to be back. When I talked to you first, I was in Long Island. Now I'm back in D.C. Yeah. The heart oh, man. of it capital where all this legislation is moving about 
you're doing it. All right. So I mean, let's talk a little bit about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. What is its story? How is it still relevant? The Migratory Bird Treaty Act is the oldest bird conservation law that we have on the books. And it is uh, very much a bedrock piece of legislation that protects migratory birds that include, uh, you know, international agreements with Russia, Mexico, Japan, Great Britain. And um, it is, it has been since 1918, that one bedrock law that protects migratory birds. That's, that's, I mean, it's crazy. I think about the way things have changed from 1918 till now, you know, commercial hunting of birds was a huge deal back then. It's not really mm-hmm. anymore, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still important. So how is sort of MBTA, I guess, <laughs> Not like Migratory Bird Treaty Act is that much more awkward to say than in BTA. Right, right. How is, uh, how, is, uh, how is it essentially used now? Is it sort of a preventative sort of thing? Does it have a whole lot of power to police behavior? Um, what, do we, what do we use it for, despite being sort of this landmark piece of legislation, like you say? Well, it, the MBTA is credited with saving a number of species from extinction, including wood duck and sandhill crane. And I know we're going to get to it, but today, what it does is it uh, finds it, you know, holds accountable uh, uh, companies and institutions for incidental mm. takes. And yeah. there is an interpretation of incidental take that is very core to what the law is meant to do. Like it, it can't protect, you know, just in a in a very law philosophical point of view. You can have a law, but if you have nothing to enforce that law, if there's no yeah. accountability to follow that law, then it it's it has no teeth. And therefore, when folks are in violation of that law, it just might be written off as a business expense or mm-hmm. if recorded at all. And not only is there no accountability in that, um, it also is very destructive to migratory birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I often hear it you know, described in that way that you say, like, uh, if uh, a farm or whatever puts a bunch of poison a pesticide or whatever on a crop or whatever and it runs into a stream and ends up killing migratory birds by whatever means then you know they are responsible and the MBTA allows prosecutors government prosecutors to kind of add a fine to it essentially like that um i know a lot of people out there cite the migratory bird treaty act as like a way to like people shouldn't pick up you know, feathers or whatever they see on the ground, but it's not necessarily used in that way, though that's not necessarily practice you should get into. But, yeah, yeah. Um, like Fish and Wildlife Service isn't going to bust down your door if you pick up a, a vulture feather or whatever, but it's really useful for big entities and they kind of tack it on. Am I, am I explaining it correctly? I'm not even sure. No, no, I'm feeling that. And I want to add too that a lot of things in government are by permit and by permission. So while there is a general rule that you shouldn't pick up a feather or like you shouldn't take a feather from a bird, um, there are permits that allow you to. And I I have to cite exactly where this article is, but there was a really Mm. great article about Native American tribes in the West, uh, Mm. you know, dealing with those permitting issues. And I actually think that it eclipsed on the concept that I spoke on, where there are laws that exist, but there is nothing to enforce those laws. Or the way we enforce those laws can be interpreted differently, and thus the law in and of itself isn't being followed. 
Right. So a uh, prosecutor is probably going to look a little bit differently at a, um, you know, a strip mine that dumps their tailings into a pond mm-hmm. as opposed to a kid that, you know, picks up a cardinal feather. Like they're not going to throw the book at the kid that picks up the cardinal feather. I mean, that's the hope. <laughs> But really, yeah, the right. rule yeah, is like you, you can't shoot a red-tailed hawk. You, you're not going to be out stealing eggs from nest. Um, mm-hmm. And and we should give credit to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act for uh, specifically for holding liable BP for the Deepwater Horizon yeah. disaster because without the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the killing of of the you know millions of birds from that incident mm-hmm. that still you know is affecting folks today. The only way that, you know, we could get those funds settled from BP was through uh, the MBTA. And so it is very important that it has the teeth to, you know, in some ways restore justice, in some ways Mm -hmm. provide some remedy for some of these situations. Obviously, there's no amount of oil or there's no amount of money that we can throw on oil to really get it out of the ecosystem. But this money will help as it goes into other means of conservation, restoration, and resilience. So, you know, these proposed changes are not necessarily to the law itself, but more to the way that it's interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain what these changes would entail? Well, a new interpretation of the law by the Trump administration no longer holds companies or no longer holds industries accountable for incidental bird deaths under the law. Mm-hmm. And this legal opinion prevents enforcement on all incidental takes, removing incentives for companies to adopt practices that are bird friendly and that ultimately reduce the amount of threats that we all face from oil right. spills. And um, yeah. What the administration did was basically eliminate those penalties for companies that kill substantial amount of birds, including large oil spills. So if another Mm. BP were to happen, you know, the MBTA couldn't be invoked as a remedy, you know, to force a settlement and get to a remedy to the situation. And, you know, I think environmental issues are made worse, not just when we know that it's wrong, but when we can't hold folks accountable who did the wrongdoing. The concept of incidental take, I guess, all they have to do is claim they didn't mean to, mm-hmm. and yep. they it no longer applies. Which seems like, like how much do you trust a BP or a, or an Exxon or or whatever? I you know, there's a bunch of industries, you know, the coal mining industries that strip do mountaintop removal. Like, how much do you trust them when they say, "I didn't mean to do this"? Mm-hmm. That is the very clever ways that folks in the energy industry uh find ways to you know change laws you know these bedrock wildlife conservation laws they find ways to change those laws so that they can advance their interest in energy or they could advance mm-hmm. their interest maybe in particular in oil uh where i believe and you know i think maybe i'm in the audience of folks who also believe that we should be moving away from fossil fuels not incentivizing the development to the scale that we are and Mm -hmm. try to even make sense of the economics of going after a finite fuel you know it's just i think that we are knowing better and we gotta keep pushing folks to do better otherwise you know we're gonna find folks that are in these positions that can interpret and justify something that that is antithetical 
to the premise of of you know the MBTA to be example for you know bedrock yeah. wildlife conservation laws. You've worked in policy. You have experience in policy. Is this sort of thing normal? The sort of changing the interpretation of this law in order to sort of get around it. Yeah, and I think it it can be seen in a lot of things uh, legislatively, but also uh, regulatory. And that's where you see the actions of presidents and governors, people in the executive branch, having an interpretation of the law that um, we can get into a really interesting conversation about how the Constitution and how Supreme Courts, circuit courts as well, officiate those disagreements in interpretations. Um, hmm. But it is, I think, important to know that public opinion has a, has a stake in how these laws are interpreted. And I think that what has been used as standing for some of these issues has been public opinion. Like, hey, we have 40,000, 50,000 comments that have gone against this rule change in this agency. Those 50,000 comments, every single one of them is going to be a point of evidence that the environmental lawyers are going to use when they're arguing against industry making these advancements in their perspective, advancements in their industry. But really, it's just hurting the environment, you know. You talked about how the, the court system plays a role. How does that work? How do corporations get around this sort of thing? I mean, I assume that they're sort of looking for certain judges that might they might think interpret the law in the way that they do. Is there a way in which they can sort of find those judges and, and get those judges to, to hear these cases as opposed to ones that might rule and create standing that they don't want? Absolutely. I think that the idea of an apolitical or an objective judge is a farce. I think that mm -hmm. um, knowing where judges are in their principles probably is more important than where they are in policies because they don't necessarily write policy from the bench. Uh, but knowing what their principles are, for example, Chevron difference, where uh, the Supreme Court is, as an institution, making a decision saying that the executive branch in its expertise and authority has room to interpret the laws that it was given from Congress. Because mm -hmm. it, it would be on one spectrum impossible for the federal government to fulfill every single intention that is written into every single law that Congress passed or has passed um, to any degree. But then at the same time, Congress passes a law and when it's signed into when it when and then when it's signed into law, it is the law of the land, and the Supreme Court recognizes that as well. Um, so Chevron deference kind of explains, or at least getting the opinion or the perspective of Chevron deference from a potential judge is interesting because they tell you what their perspective is on the federal government or the EPA, for example, their ability to interpret a rule. Well, yeah, I think they have a lot of room to interpret rules yeah. to the advantage of the interpretation of the Constitution that I subscribe to. Now, right. none of that has to do anything with policy or maybe not directly with the energy industry. But, you know, someone who may be in the energy industry may have a list of judges that think a certain way about that principle yeah. that they know when they take this case to this court, they're going to win. They can, you know, it's possible to think that far ahead, uh, not to sound yeah. cynical, but this is part of this is a justifiably huge, right <laughs> this is a huge uh, uh uh or at least a sneak peek into some of the political calculus that we see in the news and the headlines that you know the supreme court has made this decision on this mm -hmm. thing and understanding that like well that judge was picked from here 
or in some states or yeah, in some states, judges run for office. And sometimes those mm. judges are later appointed to um, lifetime positions on the federal courts. There's definitely a political interest. There's self-interest still yeah. involved with the judges. Do you think that if the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was ever challenged on its merits, that it would get struck down whole cloth? Absolutely not. Um, I just think that the ability, I mean, there's, there's a few arguments. Some, I think it's, it's a longstanding bedrock piece of environmental legislation that has an international compromise and it has there are no adverse effects and the arguments from industry that, you know, it prevents them from doing what they need to do. I would disagree in saying that there are incentives to be bird friendly. Not only is it yeah. cool to say I'm bird friendly business, yeah. but also you get to see birds more often or kill less <laughs> b- birds less often, you know. Yeah. And I think that yeah. uh, bird friendly incentivization should be a bigger part of the conversation, and not folks that are trying to just avoid it or cut ways around it. So it's just like essentially like people trying to find these kind of sneaky ways to circum circumvent the actual law and get they get what they want regardless. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah. again, in who are in these positions and mm-hmm. how are they interpreting things? And then what ends do they meet when they interpret things that way um, are yeah. always really important things to look at. Yeah. So when you look at these proposed changes, what worries you the most? Similar to environmental justice legislation, remedy for environmental justice is often in the regulatory state where Congress Mm -hmm. has to pass a law that specifically codifies or uncodifies a line that is being interpreted by the EPA or the Department of the Interior or the enforcer of the law, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to change what that interpretation can and should be. While it's important that we put folks in positions that want to interpret things in good ways, Um, It's also good that we are paying attention to exactly what's written in these laws, because, you know, we might agree to a general idea of what a legislative priority can accomplish. But when you actually look at the letter of the law and you're actually in the line by line of the legislation, you have to know where Mm -hmm. there are opportunities for somebody to who are who's enforcing that law to interpret it differently and having a wide interpretation can be a weakness but also having a very strict interpretation can be a weakness so you know i think ultimately having an equity lens on how we interpret Mm -hmm. legislation or how we pick you know what needs to be um you know how we say things i think we should do it with the guardrails of equity and thinking that we want an outcome Mm -hmm. that or we want equal outcomes regardless of the current amount of resources that we're going to put resources where we should so that there are equal outcomes and not just passing around equal resources and hoping for equal outcomes. I think one of the things that bothers me the most about this migratory bird treaty act thing is that the fish and wildlife services own analysis has like stated that this will harm birds. Like they're totally acknowledging that this is going to harm birds, but they're using some really editorialize here, like some really awful justification for it. For instance, we were talking about this before we started recording the, the fact that they cited the, the miracle on the Hudson, the U S airways crash, Mm -hmm. uh, that bailed into the Hudson river a few years ago 
as a justification I can't for believe rolling they back. brought Tom Hanks into this. That's right. They've, <laughs> they've besmirched the reputation of Sully Sullenberg. <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> but the, you know, the idea being that because you know Canada geese hit the plane engines, that birds writ large are uh, are doing great, which just seems like on its face like such an absurd mm-hmm. claim. <laughs> But do you see these sorts of claims usually is or is this like exceptionally ridiculous? I would imagine that that is exceptionally ridiculous, especially <laughs> to the layman. But yeah, in I'm sure yeah. if we get into like the nooks and crannies of environmental regulation and environmental litigation, yeah. Yeah. we'll probably see some really disappointing, <laughs> but unsurprising <laughs> things so. and how this thing was justified versus that thing being justified. And, um, right. you know, it, it's definitely uh, it's like detangling Christmas lights. You know, it's just like a, it, <laughs> it's kind of pretty, but it, this is a mess and it's a mess within a mess. And, you know, to 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 remedy that i think ultimately we need full participation from society on uh demanding better how we treat each other and working better again as a society to accomplish an end that is better for everyone equally yeah so we need to work together what can birders do to move the dial on these these proposed changes one thing, make sure your voice is being heard, whether that's on yeah. public comments, on decisions in your neighborhood from the zoning board, or if it is on a rule change with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, mm. your voice is very important. Public comment is, is, a, is a part of that. Your voice being heard also in November is essential. It's essential in a lot of ways, not just due to the challenges of coronavirus and voter suppression that has been historic, but now has an advantage because of the interpretations of state legislatures in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we, being honest, aren't able to make every decision perfect, but we have to take opportunities to advance society towards a more equitable society by making sure your voice is heard on public comments, making sure your voice is heard in the ballot box, um, but also working and organizing with you know, whether that's your local Audubon chapter or your local ornithological club, I think it's important that birders come together because I think birders are really great advocates. And if the birding community is more inclusive, the advocacy from the birding community will be legendary. Yeah, totally. And and uh, I, I will note that the comment period for this Migratory Bird Treaty Act uh, change ends at the end of July. So uh, definitely get your, your comment in by then. I'll have the link to the comment sheet in the show notes here. Does this, does this sort of thing really help? Absolutely, I do. Um, I, I don't have it on me, but public comments are used in amicus briefs that trigger these uh, environmental lawsuits as yeah. a means of saying, hey, people care about this. They all know it's the wrong thing to do. And the only people who think it's the right thing to do have a self-interest in the adverse right. effects. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's often what I've seen from environmental arguments, you know, where it's just like, yeah. judge, please see that this is bad and <laughs> yeah, we don't right. need this. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just strikes me that um, birders in general, and we, we could be better about signing these things off. I know that National Audubon does a really good job getting out these action alerts to mm-hmm. let people know to do that. It's one of the great things that they do. And um, 
yeah, we'll we'll put all that in the in the show notes to make sure that everyone everyone sees it. And I will say that even if this does change, mm-hmm. even if the interpretation does change, this is an executive branch decision. So theoretically, another president could come along and change it back. I'm very glad you said that. <laughs> that yeah. is very very true. I think yeah. that, you know, the principles and concepts of leadership work in you know, the government and the politics that we see. And I think a better leader can make a better decisions about what our future can and should be. Mm -hmm. Taiki James is the host of Onward for Wildlife, a podcast on the Wildlife Observer Network. Please check that out for more of his thoughts on conservation policy. I feel like this is a conversation that will probably be ongoing. So uh, I hope we'll have you back to talk policy again the next time. Uh, and there are, there's always a next time. Thank you so much, Taiki, for joining me. I'm really happy I can. I look forward to being back soon. Just a reminder that the deadline for comment on those MBTA changes is July 20th. So you've got just over a week to submit something. It doesn't need to be fancy. It just needs to be opposed. Link in the show notes. Please do what you can. Before we say goodbye, I have a couple of corrections to make because I will acknowledge my mistakes when I can. For the first, last week I was reading the names of the people who have joined the ABA recently due to the podcast, and I made an aside about the hometown of one of them, Carpinteria, California. I said this was the Spanish name for woodpecker. I was wrong. The Spanish name for woodpecker is Carpintero, whereas Carpinteria means carpentry. Close, close not close enough. I apologize for the error. Thanks for the correction, Christy Esmahan. Another mistake a couple weeks ago with regard to a first Michigan record of black skimmer, I stated that it was associated with the passage of tropical storm Cristobal. Not completely irrational guess, but as it turns out, the bird was seen a few days before the remains of Cristobal came through. So an already unlikely record made even more unlikely. I don't have on me the person who corrected me. Sorry about that, but I was wrong there too. And thirdly, this was not an example of podcast wrongitude, just an issue of general internet wrongness. I got in a rather heated discussion with Martin Reed, a birder in Texas, about what the ABA can do as an organization to make a gesture towards diversity in our community. What I read as snark was not meant to be, and I apologize publicly for that. We're all trying to be better, and sometimes that journey is imperfect. We've been spending a lot of time talking about racial diversity justifiably with the energy behind Black Birders Week, but it's not the only kind of diversity to acknowledge. Martin brought up French-speaking Canadian members, of which we have a few, more than a few, a few dozen. Obviously, we are a primarily English-speaking organization, but we have published a few things in French as well, notably the ABA Code of Birding Ethics, but we could do better for those members of the ABA or our larger birding community for whom English is not their first language. I just want to acknowledge that French is the first language of a lot of people in Eastern Canada, Quebec specifically, um, and that is part of the ABA area. The American Ornithological Society maintains a list of North American birds in French, so it would not be difficult for us to create an ABA checklist in French as well. Uh, Spanish, a little more difficult because there are a lot of regional dialects and regional 
bird names, but it's not impossible. And we should seek to create one of those as well. And we will do so as we are able to do so. So thank you, Martin, for bringing that to our attention. We certainly take those criticisms to heart. So there you have it. I was wrong. If I continue to be in the future, you can always let me know at podcast at aba.org. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We're a membership organization. And if you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining. You'll get our magazine. You can get discounts to partners like Princeton University Press and Cornell Labs, Birds of the World. And you get the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community here and around the world. You can get information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Amy Longley and Betsy McMillan of Northfield, Ohio, Randy Reed of Woodenville, Washington, Nevin Durish and family of Austin, Texas, Rita Flores, Wiskowski of South Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Sulima Elamam of New York, New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Welcome and thank you so much. If you want to help even more, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It provides us with great feedback, helps people find us, and there's this Sasquatch podcast that I really don't think should be classified as a nature podcast that's kind of breathing down our virtual necks right now. So just throwing that out there, if that moves the dial at all, you know, just think about that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that the entire reason we have specific laws protecting whooping cranes wintering on the upper Texas coast is because Tom Hanks made the case in Apollo 13. Houston, we have a problem. Technical production is by John Lowry, who is generally okay with changing all eponym bird names except for the plover, the warbler, and the phalarope because, as Tom Hanks says in Castaway, and I quote, Well said! Additional help comes from Greg Neeson and David Hartley, who find it infuriating that the justification to rescind leash laws on Montrose Beach in Chicago is based primarily on the fact that the dog and Turner and Hooch could solve crimes with Tom Hanks. And did you see him wearing a leash? You can find us online at ABA.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash birders, and on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA as Tom Hanks, or rather the computer-rendered Tom Hanks-ish character in the Polar Express says... Sometimes the most real things in the world are the things we can't see, which sounds a lot like justification for stringing to me, so maybe can it, Tom. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.